We're going to go back to Psalm 23. You might have guessed that. And last week, if you weren't here, I tried to preach about half of one verse, the whole sermon. And today, maybe we'll be the second half of that verse. Psalm 23, verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Lord Jesus, come with your Holy Spirit, God, please. Please humble me, overshadow me, empower me with your spirit. Open the minds and hearts. I want you to just bring a a calm and a peace upon this congregation as we listen to your word. Teach us about you and your love and who we are and who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned last time briefly when we were talking about the Lord is my shepherd, a modern-day shepherd named Philip Keller. And this book that he wrote, I'm going to take a few minutes and read from it, so bear with me. It's called Lessons from a Sheepdog, A True Story of Transforming Love. It's very, it's very good. And I want you children to listen because you're going to enjoy it. This will tie in so you adults uh, don't get distracted. I want you to listen too. This was a man who was born in 1920 and started sheep farming right after the Great Depression, when money was very tight, and he spent every, literally every penny he could on his first flock and some land. And he realized, this is where I'm going to start reading, he realized he had to have a faithful sheepdog or there was no way his ranch was going to be successful. So he says, One day there was a short advertisement in the city newspaper. It read, Wanted. A good country home for a purebred border collie. Chases cars and bicycles. So I hurried up to a neighboring rancher's house and phoned the owner in town, some 27 miles away. Yes, the lady replied, I still have the dog. Please do come quickly. No one else wants her. Her voice sounded desperate. In short order, I drove down the winding country road and pulled up outside a little cottage in the suburbs. The lady was waiting for me at her gate. Almost before I could get out of the car, she began to talk excitedly. Mr. Keller, I I can't do a thing with this creature. The dog is plumb crazy. She's loco. The woman threw up her arms in dismay. All she does is chases after kids, chases boys on bicycles, jumps all the fences, and races after every car that comes down the road. Please let me see her, I requested, trying to calm the owner's excitement. Maybe I can do something with her. I've had dogs all my life. She led me around to the back of the house. As we entered the little yard, a leaping bundle of dog flung herself toward me. She snarled and snapped and then collapsed in a heap on the ground. Instantly, to my shock and horror, I saw the dog was not only chained from her collar to a steel post, but also was hobbled by a second chain from her neck to her back leg. What a pitiful spectacle. Crouched in the dirt, the dog glared at me. Her ears were laid back in anger. Deep, guttural, menacing growls rumbled in her throat. How old is she, I asked, my question put to the owner to help cover the profound pity and love that welled up within me. And what is her name? The owner replied that the dog was two years old and her name was Lassie. I looked at the border collie with mingled emotions. She was a dog gone wrong, almost beyond hope or help. Yet somehow I saw beyond all of this, and in her I saw a keen intelligence and a great capacity to learn. 
She had a splendid constitution with deep, wide chest, broad back, and strong legs. The master breeders had done a magnificent job of producing such a superb creature. At two years of age, most dogs have learned all they will ever know, I told the lady, but she is too beautiful to destroy. I'm prepared to give her a chance to change. The owner was still tense, waiting for my next words. I will take her home to my ranch on one condition. I wait each word carefully. If I cannot do anything with her after six weeks, I will bring her back to you. She's too lovely a specimen for me to put away. You must then destroy her. The lady agreed to my proposition, so I unhobbled Lass. Malon, that would be her name. I led her out to my car and put her behind the front seat for the long ride home. And all the way I talked to her reassuringly in a low and gentle voice. All I got in response were low growls. Occasionally, I would try to put my hand back to touch or pet her, but she would bare her teeth and snap back angrily. Reaching the ranch, I felt a particular inner assurance that somehow this torn and twisted dog would be redeemed. Our land lay at the very end of the country road where it ran into the sea. There were virtually no cars to chase, no boys on bicycles to tempt her, just wide rolling pastures and a rugged shoreline where ocean waves thundered against the land. Most importantly, there was a new master. Lass was given a kennel with fresh, clean bedding. She had a bowl of sparkling water and a dish heaped with food. She would touch none of them. Every advance made to touch her was rejected. Any attempts to call her were resisted belligerently. Day followed day, she was beginning to lose condition, and I even feared that she might die. In an act of faltering faith, I settled on a daring step. I decided to set her totally free. The instant I did so, she fled into the forest behind our cottage, and in a matter of moments, she disappeared from view. I wondered if I would ever see her again. And so, I'll summarize this part and skip ahead to the rest of what I want to read to you. She disappeared for several days, this dog, and the owner started to think maybe she was gone forever, One day he saw her up on a hill and started taking her food and she would eat it at night and he still wouldn't be allowed to touch her. And this is uh, him telling about it some more. He says, my wife, this was when he first brought the dog, my wife, thrilled and excited by the beautiful dog, brought out a heaping bowl of food and fetched another dish full of water. She ignored both of our offerings. She refused to touch either food or drink. This went on day after day. I was utterly dismayed. There was no sign of positive response. Her form became gaunt and wasted. And in a bold and desperate act, I undid her leash and set her free. He told about that again. Now, this is the part I want to get to that's so beautiful. And I don't know if y'all can tell, but that story touches me so much. I'm fighting back uh, emotion because of the picture that it is. In a flash, she was gone. Like a fleeting phantom, she vanished into the woods. I wondered if I would ever see her again. I drove up and down our country road in hope of finding her. I called at neighboring ranches. I combed our fields and ocean edge, but no sign of my lass. In the anguish of my search, I began to understand a little bit of the sorrow that God endures amid all of his endeavors to draw us to him. Again and again, we refuse his benefits offered to us. Belligerently, we rebuff his love and concern. Yet in spite of her indifference and unyielding resistance, I had an enormous empathy for the dog. I longed to redeem her. 
I was consumed with a desire to make her into a loving, loyal companion. I yearned to see her rise to the potential that lay dormant within her. All of these hopes seemed dashed into dust until one evening I looked up onto the edge of a rough rock outcrop behind the cottage. There she was. I decided to take food and water up to her lookout. Every morning it was gone, and yet every evening she would be back. Every time I approached her and called her by name or whistled, she vanished, spirited away like smoke whisked away in the wind. I began to wonder if this distant dog would ever become truly mine. She did not mind eating the food set out for her. She drank the water poured out for her. She relished the total freedom she'd been given, but she was not mine, nor was I hers. Caught up in this standoff, the gracious Spirit of God brought home to my heart with great clarity the predicament in which people put themselves before God. The Master comes to us in our plight. He offers to take us into His family. He spares no pains to provide all that is necessary for our welfare and contentment. He speaks to us reassuringly. He calls us by name. He sets us totally free. Yet the personal response of most people is to recoil from Him. They resent his approach. They're skeptical. They refuse to respond to his overtures of compassion. They flee to escape from his hands. The paradox in this belligerent behavior is that at the same time, they don't mind taking advantage of Christ's benefits, but in the moment and place of their own choosing and their own self-willed way. But nothing seemed to elicit her positive response. I began to wonder if all my overtures of love were in vain. The dark prospect that she might have to be destroyed loomed ever larger. This was the most poignant lesson I learned from last. It was she who eventually must make the decision whether or not she would come to me and entrust my life to her care, allow me to control her conduct, and lead her. At this point in my own walk with God, I began to be bewildered by the conflicting views and highly divergent doctrines debated within Christianity, discussions on the absolute sovereignty of God held by extreme Calvinists and grave responsibility of man taught by the Arminians had always dismayed me, for in the final analysis, the issue always rises as to the ultimate end of man. Does he decide his own destiny? Does he determine his own destruction? Does he discover that hell or heaven are of his own choice or not? In my agonizing approaches and appeals to this dog, I saw with intense clarity that both views were correct, complementary, and reconciled within the response of an individual's will. As her new master, I had done everything I could within my power and sovereign love for her. Now she, in response to my compassion, would have to choose to come to me of her own free will, yet ever drawn by my overtures of concern." He says, then one summer evening, the sun was setting in a spectacle of golden glory over the western horizon. The mingled colors rose, lavender and gold and scarlet were reflected in the sea. In the foreground, my flock fed peacefully in the pastures at the ocean edge. It was utterly breathtaking, a scene which transported one into a wondrous serenity. But softly, almost imperceptibly amidst my reverie, I sensed the hesitant, first faint touch of a warm, soft nose touching my hands, held behind my back. A thrill of exquisite delight swept over me. Last had come. The distance between us had been crossed. Irrepressible joy swept through me in a wave upon wave. Hope flamed anew. Clearly, I could see now why Christ told us emphatically there was tremendous joy in heaven whenever a straying one came home. I could understand why all the hopes, desires, and dreams of God for His people when brought to reality set the angels singing.
All she had to do was follow me. Now, there's a lot more to this story. You may want to get it and read it. It's beautiful. You know what I see in that picture and why it took so long to read it? Comparatively long. Here's this dog hobbled in chains and dirt in the backyard, not what she was made for. She's made to be a dog roaming the countryside, actually working, actually doing something important, actually helping her master. And she's chained up in a backyard because her master doesn't understand what she's made for. And so when, when shepherd David, who became king, when he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, that picture comes so strikingly, powerfully to my mind of Jesus Christ coming to rescue us who are tied up in chains in a dirty, dusty backyard with mud all over us and we think we have a good life. And this uh, Philip Keller, he says in one place in that book, he said, I took off her chains and her leg where it was hobbled to her, her neck. I took that chain off and I put my own soft collar on her and took her home. See, that's what Jesus does. He says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. You'll find rest for your souls. He says, My burden is easy and my yoke is light. And it's a beautiful picture. And so in the picture of this dog and this shepherd, we have a picture of God searching for people who will come to him. Now, this case is the sheep dog and not sheep. I preached last week about how we are sheep, uh, metaphorically, and the Lord is our shepherd. But even here, you see the picture of the shepherd looking and searching and having the best in mind for this animal. And the dog goes home with him and can't grasp that. She can't understand it. She can't, she can't trust him Just like John was teaching us about in Sunday school, that faith, that trust on one hand and the skepticism and doubt on the other hand, all she's known is a hard master. All she's known is a master who's critical and who doesn't have her best interest in mind. And here comes Jesus with outstretched arms and says, I will love you no matter what, and she can't believe it. And that's how we are. When David says, the Lord is my shepherd, like I I tried to preach last week, and I want to remind us of that, we have to remember what that means. That the Word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us was the very same Word who created the universe. And that He's our shepherd? He says, I shall not want. See, that dog came home to that shepherd's house and she didn't realize, she didn't understand, because she didn't know what a good shepherd was like. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. And this shepherd was doing that day after day, was sacrificing emotionally and physically his time, his energy, his concern, to try to show this dog what he was like, what his character was like as her master. She was skeptical. She ran off in the woods. And so many times, just like he said, my gentle speech was just met with overtures of growling and snarling. God comes to a person. This is how it often happens. And he shows that person his love, and that person feels the condemnation. They feel that their condition is wrong. They know that they're not who they were meant to be, and God speaks to them in their heart in such a loving, gentle voice, and yet they recoil, and they're skeptical, and they stay away from me. Run off in the woods, do our own thing, because we don't realize in those first few initial encounters with God in His presence, 
that He has only our best interest at mind and at heart. So just like that dog, we run off in the woods, wander around, chasing things, not having a comfortable home, trying to find our own way. And God, even in that, will come and give us provision. He'll give us grace, just like that shepherd took bowls of food up on the hill to feed her because she was too scared to come to his home. God does the very same thing when people are too afraid to come into the home that he provides. He, he sustains them with his mercy. He provides people to help them. He, he's done that with us. You think about before you knew the Lord, all the grace of God upon your life. I shall not want. That dog, Lass, realized, and he tells in that book, it's such a beautiful story. He says, once she finally came home, she walked softly behind him to her kennel, and periodically he would pick her up and just hold her, just stroke her. And he said, in those early days of our relationship, I just wanted to be with her. He said, she would stay for a minute or two and then jump out of my arms because that was all she could stand. And more and more, as time went on, the more she trusted him, the more... That grew. And then she began to learn his voice. Remember I preached last week? Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, and another they will not follow. He said, there are other uh, false shepherds who would try to climb up a different way, but they're not like me. I was talking to a, a, a young woman the other day, and she was telling me about her skepticism about religion. And she said, I know, she said I, I know there's a creator who made everything. Anybody that didn't believe that is just crazy. But she said, I have trouble worshiping a God that I can't see, hear, touch. None of my senses can perceive him. And we went on talking, and a little later there was this, this guy that she kept seeing and saying, uh, I really feel like I know that guy. Several times. So he came near, and she said, you know what, if I could hear his voice, I'll know if it's him or not. So she says, hey, do I know you? He talks, and they realize that uh, they did know each other. And they finished talking, and I said, you know what, isn't that interesting how you said, if I can just hear his voice, I'll know it's him. I said, that's how it is with God. I can't touch him with my hands. I can't see him with my eyes. I can't usually hear him with my ears. And yet I know his voice. And I said, behind all of the distraction and chatter of my mind, saying, none of this is possible. How could there be a God like that? How could somebody like that really exist? See, that's the problem thinkers have. I told her that. I said, underneath all that is the quiet voice of God. Just like that man, you heard his voice, you knew it was him. I said, that's how it is with God. When you really hear his voice, see, that's how it is. With that dog I'm reading about, that's how it is with sheep, that's how it is with us. What does it mean to not be in want? Most people, most Christians have been taught that what God wants for us is to pretend we're happy with less than we really want, to pretend we're satisfied being uncomfortable, to pretend we have more faith than we really have. And none of that is what David is talking about. Philippians 4, if you want to go there, we'll read a little. And I'm going to explain to you, or try to with the Lord's help, what it means 
to not be in want. I'm going to read beginning in verse 6. Philippians 4. Be careful for nothing, or don't take care or worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Do we do that? In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. You know what uh, many of us have the tendency to do instead of that? I have this tendency, maybe some of you do. I have a problem, I'm going to go solve it. There's something that needs fixing, let me figure out how to fix it. Something that needs doing, let me figure out how I'm going to do it. When all we need to do is take these burdens, worries, and concerns to God. And if we do, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Then he says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if they have any virtue, if they have any praise, think on these things. Those things which you've both heard and learned and received and seen in me do, and the God of peace will be with you. We have a recipe for peace here. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me has flourished again, wherein you were also careful or worried, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I'm in therewith to be content. I know both how to be a base and how to abound everywhere in all things. I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. When David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, this is the very same idea of Paul saying, I am content in whatever state I'm in. You know what that word content means? You might be surprised. I was a little surprised when I looked it up. The Greek word is autarkes. And it's made from two words, autos and arkeo. Arkeo means to be content, to be sufficient, to be enough. And the other word that it's combined with means myself. The word literally means to be self-sufficient. Think about that for a minute. Paul says, I have learned, no matter where I am, in prison or in the fellowship of a congregation, whether eating a meal or hungry, I have learned to be self-sufficient. Now, by extension, the word means satisfied with what I have inside of myself. Paul's not saying that I'm self-sufficient on my own strength. He's saying that I am satisfied with what is inside of me. That's why godliness with contentment is a great gain. And that's why David said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Because God, when he saves a person, puts the spirit of himself inside of us. And we have all we ever need inside. That's what... Paul means when he says, I've learned to be self-sufficient. I've learned to rely on what is inside of me that God put there. Now let me ask you this. Everybody here, everybody listening later. Are you happy? And you don't have to answer me, but think about it. And if you're not happy, I ask people this all the time, and I ask myself all the time, what would it take to make you happy? What do you really want? What would make you happy? And so people have these ideas, like if I could just 
perfect this particular talent I have and become world class at it, then I would be happy. And yet the best musicians in the world commit suicide sometimes. If I could just have a wonderful, powerful influence on everybody, then I'd be happy. And yet actors and celebrities who have this unbelievable influence over the world and power and money to do things, they commit suicide sometimes. And I could go on and on with example after example. There's nothing we can accomplish. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing that we can have around us that will ever fulfill us because the only way is like Paul said, I've learned to be sufficient with what's inside of me. I've learned to be content with that. Like David said, I shall not be in want when the Lord is my shepherd. See, the only way that we can get to a place where we can truly, and not in some phony religious way where we're trying to work up faith we don't have. But I mean, there's a difference. And some of y'all have experienced the difference in trying to have a good attitude and actually being a good attitude. There's a difference. Trying to pretend everything's okay versus actually knowing deep down inside, beneath all logic, all human rationale, that everything really is okay. There's a difference. And what David is talking about and what Paul is talking about is knowing that everything really is okay in God. I love this verse from Psalm 49. It says, Don't be afraid when a man becomes rich. Don't envy him. When the glory of his house is increased, because when he dies he will carry nothing away, his glory will not descend after him. There's a lot in that verse. He doesn't say his glory won't ascend as in to go up. He says it won't descend after him. What does that tell you? The man who makes it his whole purpose in life to gain wealth because he thinks that's going to satisfy him, when it's all done, is going to go into hell and the glory he built is not going to come with him. Scary. Job said, naked I came out of my mother's womb and naked I shall return. To death, in other words. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Paul wrote to Timothy, first letter in the the sixth chapter. He said, godliness, I think it was the sixth chapter, godliness with contentment is great gain. That's what we're talking about. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The only way we can feel that way is to understand that. We brought nothing into this world. It's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they who make it their purpose to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into any, many foolish lusts and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Which while some coveted after they've erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You want to be miserable? Depend on money or depend on your own strength or depend on your own fame or your own power. Let me ask you this. How many of you have more peace in your life when you have more money in the bank? Have you ever thought about that? Who do you think worries more at night? The guy with $300,000 paintings on his wall? Or the person who just has enough to buy food, they go to bed, they sleep? There's proverbs about this. There's scriptures about this. The poor man can sleep in peace. The rich man has all these worries. I'm not suggesting you don't be rich. 
But I've noticed in my own life, although uh, I don't, I, compared to most of the world, most of us are rich, but compared to our standards, maybe most of us aren't. But you know when I worry more is when I have a little bit of money to try to do something with. <laughs> when I worry less, no extra money to try to do anything with. Got enough to eat, enough to pay bills, that's it, I'm fine. Have you noticed that? I don't know, maybe I'm the only one who's like that. But I don't think so. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Nothing in ourselves. The Lord has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us everything we need to serve Him. I want to get toward the end of this message with this two scriptures. James chapter 1. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives to everyone overabundantly. And it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must trust Him and you must not doubt because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. That person is double-minded and unstable in all he does. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. You can read that in Matthew 6. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. And so brothers and sisters and people maybe who don't know the Lord yet, when you're trying to depend on something you can produce and something you can make on your own and something you can build to make you safe and comfortable and happy, you will always be disappointed. I've heard these very powerful celebrities, musicians that I mentioned, say that when they reach that pinnacle of what everybody in the world thinks that they're looking for, when they finally arrived, it was the loneliest place in the world. Isn't that something? And many of them, as a last desperate measure to try to feel human again, throw themselves into this insanity drugs or other problems. They reach rock bottom. They break where nothing in life matters anymore except literally their own life. That's all that matters anymore. And finally, they feel again what it's like to be human. See, God has made a way that we can understand that truth without going through all of that pain and sorrow. You know how we understand it? To realize the Lord is our shepherd. To know and to trust that He is the one who comes to us. And like I preached last week, we've got our little sheep stature. We're not as tall as a shepherd. We've got our little sheep brains. We're not as sharp, smart as a shepherd. And He comes to us with only good intentions. He has in His mind our God, our Father in Heaven, our Savior. This, this plan for our lives, this purpose that is so grand, but it takes discipline and it takes some difficult things and it takes some things that aren't comfortable for us because we're not used to Him being our Master. And the more we know Him, the more comfortable it gets. The quieter His voice can get. This shepherd, his end goal was to train the dog first by voice command. All the time he was talking so she would know His voice. Then he was teaching her commands so she would understand. And then he began to combine visual commands with verbal ones until they could work together in silence. All she had to do was look to Him. Isn't that beautiful? 
Sometimes it's uncomfortable and God gets a little quieter. But it's because we should be looking to what he's taught us. We should be ever more alert and our ears should be on just hyper alert like that little dog to hear him. Then we will not want, we won't be in need, we won't be empty. We have everything we need. It's like that word I explained, inside of us, if we know God. Now, if you don't know God yet, if you're here and you don't know him, you're listening to this recording later, you don't know him, you may wonder, what does that even mean, I don't know God? You might be like the the girl I mentioned who said, you know, I was raised in Christianity, I was taught these things, and somewhere around sixth grade, it all fell apart. And she said, I just couldn't make myself feel how I thought I was supposed to. Somewhere around that same age, oftentimes people become aware of who God is. They become accountable is the religious word we use. And they have a choice like this dog. They have a choice whether to go toward God who's calling them and drawing their heart or they have a choice to go the opposite way and turn on all the distractions of the world and constantly bombard it with noise and information so you don't have to listen. You know what she told me? She said that is always underneath that uh, discomfort, that turmoil. That's something. Would you want to live your life like that? So maybe there are people who are in that kind of shape. I want to tell you, you don't have to live your life that way. You know what it takes? You have to come to Jesus. You have to come to God. You have to surrender yourself to him. How do you do that? Well, you pray. Say, well, I don't know how to pray. Well, I don't either. Except to talk to God. Well, I don't even know if I believe in God. So tell him that. One of the most beautiful testimonies I heard, somebody said, Lord, if you're real, I don't even know if you are, but if you are, show me. God will reveal himself, not in a way that you have to try to convince yourself of him, but he'll show you in a way that you won't need to be convinced. When you get sincere and really want to know what he's like and who he is, he'll show you. So that's how you come to God. Lord, I don't understand this. I I don't know about all this religious stuff. I don't even know what I believe. If you're real, you show me. Help me pray. You come to him and surrender. That's how you have peace. This shepherd told about all the years that him and this dog last worked together and how she became more and more happy and more and more comfortable, more and more joyful. And I want to mention this for for those of us who know the Lord. He said she became a one-man dog. When he went out of town, she wouldn't eat till he got back home. Even his wife couldn't feed this dog. If it was a week, she wouldn't eat till her master came back. How much happier would we be as God's children if we only ate the food from our master and didn't go out, Lord, I haven't heard from you in a while. Let me go get some, you know, pop psychology or some self-help or some guru, some meditation or some yoga. What if we just said, Lord, I need your bread. I need your truth. We'd have peace, wouldn't we? So that's what I'm going to leave us with. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I won't be in lack. I won't need anything. 